In our series so far, uh, we've heard six trumpets sound, one, two, three, four, five, six, and we are, depending on how you want to take it, either in the midst of the sixth trumpet after it sounded, or an interlude before, uh, between the sixth and the seventh, or an intermission. But right now, we are looking at what happened after the sixth trumpet sound and before the seventh trumpet is going to sound. With those things in mind, before we read God's word, all of chapter Revelation 10, uh, let's pray and ask for his blessing. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, to ask for your help. Uh, some of us have been in church, heard under the word preached for a long time. And yet we find ourselves with this hard, callous, and stony heart. Would you help our unbelief? Others of us have been having a hard time believing in the gospel in real life. Believing in the gospel in every uh, one of our circumstances. To live as Jesus has lived, to trust in your will and to obey your commands, to trust that you do indeed know better. Would you help us to see the gospel again and see, and not just see, but experience its immense power to save and to deliver? And Father, others of us have not know you, have not come to know you truly. We've been living nominally and living just as the world does. Father, would you change our hearts? Would you penetrate it? Because we find that we cannot do it ourselves. We find ourselves frustrated and despairing when we try to do it ourselves. And lastly, Father, as Joseph has said in Genesis when he was imprisoned, we ask, we say the same thing. Do not interpretations belong to you. We recognize that we are in a hard book, hard to understand, maybe because it's hard itself or maybe because we are stubborn in our hearts to hear. But open our eyes and our ears that we may behold wondrous strings in your word. May you be glorified at this time. May your word resound at this time. May you be center stage at this time. May you receive glory for yourself, for who you are and all that you do, and especially for what you have done in Jesus Christ, the gospel that saves everyone and anyone who believes. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at Revelation chapter 10. Hear now the word of God. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud. 
with the rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So, I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must Again, prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Revelation 10. What is going on? It's a hard book. Um, like again, uh, as a reminder, in our series so far, six trumpets have sounded and the seventh and final trumpet has yet to sound. So we're smack dab in the middle. I want to tell you a little bit about what happened in the sixth trumpet before we come to our passage today. Last week, the sixth trumpet sounded. After the sixth trumpet sounded, the four angels bound to the river Euphrates were released to kill a third of mankind. And they were killed. Judgment. The crazy thing is, at the end of chapter 9, right before this, even in spite of this, as what we would perceive, horrific tragedy, the rest of mankind did not repent. They did not repent. So maybe you have some of those friends who say, if God would just intervene in my life, he doesn't need to come. Just send an angel and make him do his thing. Then I would believe it. I just got to see it to believe it. It's not true. Last week, a third of mankind were killed. Two-thirds still did not repent. Even if um, we were to barely escape justify judgment. None of us would repent. We would not repent. 
we would be stubborn. Even if we were in front of death's door, we would be as obstinate as these people were against God Almighty. So people don't need to see supernatural activities. People need supernatural intervention. They need God to intervene and to interrupt their lives and to change their hearts. Because what could penetrate the tough, stony, rigid, callous human hearts but God himself, but the grace of God? And if you do believe, that is again by the grace of God. And so last week, we were all called to repent and believe in the Lord. So before we go to our passage today, have you repented from your sins? And have you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you repented and believed? Now we're in our chapter today, and this is what happens. Today we're in the midst of the sixth trumpet, perhaps an interlude. And today we're going to see two things, and then I'm going to add another thing as an application. But we're going to see a promising angel, and then we're going to see a prophesying apostle. A promising angel and a prophesying apostle. And we're, all, we're also going to know that at the end of all this, it will be a kind of bittersweet thing. So let's dive right in. Uh, prior to our passage, um, um, there's an angel who comes. Uh, verse 1, angel who comes, a mighty angel who comes. But prior to this, six trumpets, six trumpets have been blown. I'll give you a summary of what happened real fast. The first angel blew the trumpet. And then judgment followed. The second angel blew his trumpet. And then judgment followed. The third angel blew his trumpet. And then judgment followed. We're going all the way to six. The fourth, the fifth, the sixth angels blew their trumpet. And judgment followed. I wonder if you see a pattern. And now... we see an angel. Um, if you've been following uh, the series so far, you know that these angels are no joke. They're no small matter. They're no small deal. If the whole world, if we all became unified somehow and got all of our weapons of warfare and mass destruction and tried to fight one angel, we would fail. They're no joke. Um, and so I made up some words to try to describe. Forgive me in advance. They are spine-chillingly, feet-tremblingly, breathtakingly frightening. And the crazier thing is they're all subject to God. Imagine how terrifying God himself is. And we see another mighty, mighty angel coming down. Yet there's something unique about this angel. All the angels so far with the trumpets, none of them were given descriptions, except for this angel today. 
there's something particular about this angel. So let's look at verses 1 to 3. Let's look at what the Apostle John says. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring when he called out the seven thunders sounded. This is a mighty angel. And this mighty angel comes with descriptions. Why did the Apostle John do that? He didn't describe the previous angels. Why is he deliberately describing this angel? But the weird thing is, he's also deliberately pointing out particular characteristics of this angel. For example, he mentions the angel's head and face, but doesn't mention his shoulders or neck. Maybe he doesn't have shoulders and neck. I assume this angel has shoulders and neck. He mentions the angel's legs and feet, but does not mention his hips or waist. Why is the Apostle John deliberately, intentionally pointing out particular characteristics of this mighty angel? Well, the answer is, the Apostle John wants his readers to see the particular things that he sees. The rainbow over his head the face like the sun, legs like pillars of fire, the little scroll opened in his hand, his right foot over the sea, his left foot over the land, and his voice like a lion roaring. He wants his readers to get this picture of this mighty angel. Why? Before I answer why, I just also want to give another valid interpretation, but I don't believe it myself. It's possible, it's possible that this angel is a tiny angel, like the size of me, and he's just on the beach, right? There's like a little rainbow over his head. He has a little sun face. Um, his right foot is on the water. His left foot is on the land, and he's just got shiny legs. It's possible that he's small, but I don't think that's likely because the way the apostle John wants you to see him is he's comparing this angel with Big images, rainbow, sun, pillars, his feet over the sea and land, a lion roaring. These are large images. So this is a large angel. He's a mighty angel. This is a scary angel. So let's go back to the question, why? Why is the Apostle John deliberately pointing out this particular angel with his particular descriptions. Well, again, if you've been reading along and following along the book of Revelation, the Apostle John already used these images before. And he used it to describe the Lord himself. This is what the Apostle John says. Jesus' face was like the sun shining in full strength. His feet were like uh, bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. And if you look at Jesus' throne, around it is a rainbow. So what's going on? Why is the Apostle John doing that with this mighty angel? Some people think 
that this mighty angel is the Lord himself. If you believe that, I think it's valid. I think you can argue for that. But for me personally, I don't believe that because the Apostle John says, another mighty angel. He describes the Lord differently. And when he's talking about angels, he says angels. So what does that mean? I believe this angel is no ordinary angel. He represents Christ himself. He comes from the Lord himself. He is a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Isn't, aren't all the angels from the Lord? So what, what's the big deal with this angel? Let me give you um, an example. If you've been reading your Bible, you know God sent his prophet to his people. Prophet one, prophet two, prophet three, prophet four. Are they all from, are they all from God? Yes, in, in the sense that they were God's prophets, not the false prophets. But yes, God sent prophets to his people. They all represent God. But what happened to the prophets? They were killed, slaughtered, rejected by the people of God. So what did God do? God did not send an ordinary mere prophet of God. He sent his son, hoping that they would listen to his son. What did they do to his son? They crucified him. Don't they all represent God? Yes, but there's something different about the Son. When he sends the Son, you know things are more personal. Things are more intense. They are serious. The prophets of God spoke the word of God. But when the Son comes, things change. We have a mighty angel who looks like the Lord. He is no ordinary angel. Things change. Things are getting more personal and more intense. So this angel is going to make a promise. But before we look at the promise, he does something. Look at verse 3. He called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Seven thunders. I don't know. I can't make this sound. Sounded. And what... What's weird is verse 4. What does the apostle John do in verse 4 after they sounded? Look at verse 4. And when the seven thunders have sounded, he, John, was about to write, but he heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Why is that weird? Because our book is called Revelation, which means to reveal. The Apostle John got a revelation to write down, to reveal. But in verse 4, this voice is saying, don't reveal it. Don't write it down. So maybe one application is, God is God, and we are not. If he doesn't want to tell us something, he doesn't need to tell us something. If he wants to hide something, he'll hide something. And no matter how hard we try, we will never peek into what is hidden. God seals. God reveals. That's maybe an application. It comes from the Bible. It's true. But I think there's another thing here. 
if the Apostle John really didn't want us to know what was going on, why did he write it down? He could have just erased it. But he let us, he clued us in that the seven thunders have sounded. He's just not going to tell us what it is. It's like him saying, I can't tell you about it. Then why did you tell us that you can't tell, tell me about it? You could have just not told me about it. So another reason, possibly, and you can hold this loosely, is the motif of seven, the sets of seven. So far in our series, there were seven, seven seals. We're in the midst of the seven trumpets. Later on, there's going to be seven plagues. Right here in verse 4, there were seven thunders. What do they all have in common? Judgment. So why did the voice in heaven say to the apostle John, seal what they said, don't write it down? If they are judgment, and if the voice was telling him to not write it down because they are judgment, Maybe the voice is saying, enough has been written. Enough has been said. I'm not going to say it anymore. I have told them about judgment. Enough. If that's true, the same application comes have you repented and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because things are serious. They have been serious. Have you repented and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Enough said. And then we approach the promise of the angel, the promising angel. Look at verses 5 to 6. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. This image of this big angel that you get stands over the sea and land as if he has all authority as if they are subject to him. They are quite literally the sea and land are under his feet. And he promises. What does he do? It looks like this. He puts, stamps his feet, raises his right hand. What is he doing? He's making an oath. Who's the witness? The creator. He's making an oath. This is weird stuff. I don't know of any angels that lie except for the devil and the demons. Why? It's like if Jesus raised his right hand, I promise, blah, blah. Jesus, you don't lie. You don't need to do that. Why is this angel doing that? Because of the seriousness of what's going to happen. He wants to impress upon us this is for real. He does not lie. But let me emphasize it more. I'm going to swear by God himself. What is the content of his oath or his promise? 
the end of verse 6 says that there would be no more delay. If you want the Greek, it literally means that there would be no more time. No more time for what? Let's look at verse 7. That there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. What's his oath? When that seventh trumpet sounds, there is no more time, no more chance, no more delay. It's going to happen. What that means for us is God has been so generously patient with us, long-suffering with us. If you think about mankind, it's been thousands and thousands of years. If you think about the New Testament era with the Lord Jesus, at least 2,000 years when he says, repent and believe. Have you repented and trusted in the Lord yet? Because there will be no more time. He is long-suffering, but he is not forever-suffering. He is perfectly patient, but that does not mean his patience runs forever. His patience is precise and perfect, which means he will wait as long as he wills it, and he will not change his mind. I'll give you a, a, a smaller example. If I had a kid, bigger, this big, and he's always playing with the kitchen knives, I'm just like, hey, don't, don't do that. <laughs> Why, Dad? Because that's dangerous. Okay, Dad. Go to your room. And goes. Comes back and he plays with the kitchen knives again. Plays with the kitchen knives again. And I, I give him a warning. I'm like, I'm telling you, one last time, don't do it or I'm going to discipline you. He does it. I discipline him. Is my patience imperfect? No. My patience goes as far as I said it will. And God's patience goes as far as he says he will. It wills. He does not lie. There will come a time where there is no more time. Bank on the generosity and patience of God now. Repent and believe now. I think I'm speaking to mostly Christians in this room. But now is a good time to examine yourself. Do you really trust in him with your life, with your sins, with your everything? I'm not talking about perfectly, but I'm talking about surrender. God, I'm terrible, but I trust in you. I trust in you, and I want to trust in you more. I'm talking about that. Did you repent and believe? And are you continuing to do so? Because when that seventh angel blows that trumpet, there is no more time. All right. Let's talk about the mystery of God in verse 7. There will be no more time, no more delay, but the mystery of God will 
be fulfilled? What is the mystery of God? The answer is going to come next week or next, next week, Lord willing. It's in chapter 11. The seventh trumpet is blown, and then whatever the mystery of God is fulfilled, and we're going to see in chapter 11. But before we get to chapter 11, I'll give you two differing interpretations, opposing interpretations, but I believe both of them are valid. They, they use a lot of scripture. And then I'll find the common denominator. Here's the first mystery of God, quite possibly. In the New Testament, the phrase mystery of God has been used a lot of times. And most of the time, the mystery of God describes you and me. It describes Gentiles. The mystery of God is that Gentiles will be included in the family of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel was for the Jews, but now Gentiles are included. It is for the world. And so when that seventh trumpet sounds, according to this interpretation, that temple in Jerusalem is going to fall. Why is that important? How does the temple falling have anything to do with us, Gentile believers? Because as long as that temple stands, the gospel will be centralized and localized in the temple of the Jews. But when that temple falls, the gospel will permeate throughout the world for both Jews and Gentiles. The gospel will be for everyone. Like Jesus says to that woman at the well, there's coming a time when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, not on this mountain or that mountain. Where then? Everywhere. That's one interpretation. It's talking about the destruction of the temple at 70 AD. So the readers, the first readers who got that, they were like, this is talking about the temple that's going to be destroyed. And for us, it has been destroyed. Here's another interpretation. This is more of a majority interpretation in the reform circle. The other view is that the mystery of God, that seventh trumpet is about when Jesus comes back and there is going to be a consummation of all things. All things will be fulfilled. Jesus comes back. All things will be made new. And every person alive and dead will bring an account to him, will give an account to him, and they will be judged. How would they be judged? According to their deeds. Everything, all things will be his, completely and perfectly. And for Christians, how will we be judged? According to our deeds. What's our deed? Our faith. And the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you, and on that day you will be judged innocent and righteous. But for those without the gospel, without faith in Jesus, you will be judged according to your deeds and not his. So those are two interpretations, but I want to come back to the common denominator, and this is in chapter 11. Whatever the case may be, that seventh trumpet is going to sound, and the mystery of God will be fulfilled. In chapter 11, it describes it this way. The kingdom of the world is now the kingdom of Christ and he shall reign. When that seventh trumpet sounds, 
Christ will reign, and he will reign perfectly. The question is, and this is, remember, the promise of the angel, his oath. The question is, are you in or are you out? Are you in his kingdom or are you out of his kingdom? There is no neutral party. Have you repented and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ yet? Because on that seventh trumpet, there will be no more time. Before we go on to the prophesying apostle, I want to talk about the kingdom of Christ for a little bit. Um, you guys know what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. Um, and some of you might know things better than others. Uh, but when it first came out, I think we can all say that we didn't like what we heard. Maybe Putin has a righteous reason for it. Maybe he has an evil reason for it. But we didn't like people dying. And that's Putin's kingdom. Maybe in America, we can call it Biden's kingdom for he's our president. And maybe you don't like how he runs the nation, or maybe you like how he runs the nation. But let's just say it's his kingdom. I want you to imagine for a second the kingdom of Christ. In his kingdom, he reigns. That means the way that he reigns is different than Biden and Putin. The way that he reigns is perfectly righteous and full of grace. Love your God and your neighbor. If you don't, are you his part of his kingdom? Because that's the law. That's how his kingdom is going to be. And that's how his kingdom is. The question for you is, what is stopping you from wanting to be in this kingdom? Why not? With this king who loves you so dearly, that he will give up his life for you, for his subjects. What kind of king is like that? Have you repented and believed? Are you part of this kingdom? Are you reconciled to God and adopted, stamped with the name of Christ? If not, why not? What kingdom is better? What king is better? What king has done so much for you already? Now let's, we looked at the promise of the angel. Now let's look at the prophecy of the apostle. Uh, let's read verse 8. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take that scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And remember, this is a mighty angel, but he has a little scroll, a big angel, little scroll. So what does the Apostle John do? Let's look at verse 9 and 10. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Uh, I did this illustration in the first service, so I'll be fair and do it again. Uh, but this is from Sinclair Ferguson. 
he said, just imagine the Apostle John for a second. This large, mighty angel with a tiny scroll, a little scroll. And then he goes up to that angel. Do you know what John says to that angel? Give me the little scroll. (laughs) He didn't even say, sir, would you please hand me that scroll? Give me the little scroll. Sinclair Ferguson said this way. You would definitely need to hear a voice from heaven, a call from God, before you ever approach that angel and take that scroll from him. That's why John can say to the angel, give me the little scroll. He had a higher authority. So what happened? John took the scroll, the little scroll, little enough for his mouth to eat it. And then when he ate it, it was as sweet as honey in his mouth. But then when that scroll began to settle in his stomach, it became bitter. What's going on? Let's look at verse 11. And I was told, right after he eats the scroll, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Somehow this scroll has to do with him prophesying. Let's talk about this little scroll. So far in the book of Revelation, there has been a scroll already. But this scroll is the one that Jesus was worthy to open. Some people think that that scroll is the same as this little scroll. I don't think it is. Why? Because this one's a little scroll. It says little. But another reason for it is because in chapter 4 or 5, there's this huge host with the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne and that scroll before him. And no one is worthy to open it. There is a mighty angel proclaiming, who is worthy to open the scroll? Perhaps it's the same mighty angel here. But that's what he's saying about that scroll. And the apostle John weeps because no one is worthy to open it until this man, God, comes. Jesus Christ. He walks down that aisle and he takes the scroll, opens and seal, and looks in it. Only he is worthy to open the scroll. Now that's a big scroll. That's a weighty scroll. That's a divine scroll. No angel can hold that scroll. That's why I don't think it's the same scroll. So what is this scroll? It's a little scroll. I think like the angel, it's representative of the big scroll. It's a smaller version of that big scroll. Maybe you don't like that. Here's another support for that. One time in the Bible before this time, and the only time that I believe, um, there was a prophet who ate a scroll, and it was as sweet as honey in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. Sounds just like the Apostle John. Who was that prophet? It was the prophet Ezekiel. He, opened, or he ate a scroll, sweet as honey in his mouth, bitter in his stomach. On his scroll was words of lamentation and judgment front and back. Sounds like Jesus' scroll. Sounds like this little scroll. So he eats the scroll, 
And then he's told what? To prophesy like Ezekiel. Do you know what Ezekiel prophesied? He prophesied to the house of Israel, God's people. And he prophesied to them about the coming judgment of God it, unless they repent. Why? What, what's going to happen? He prophesied, repent, repent from your sins, turn lest the judgment of God comes upon you. And do you know what happened? They did not repent and judgment came. Do you know what happened in the time of that judgment? The first temple in 586 B.C. was destroyed. The Babylonians came as judgment from God and wrecked them because they didn't repent. Now here's the Apostle John. He's the scroll told to prophesy again because he prophesied before. What does he prophesy about? Judgment and salvation. Salvation how? Repent. Judgment how? If you don't repent, God will judge you. So that's the prophecy of the apostle. Why is it bittersweet? Uh, there's a lot of thoughts on why it's bittersweet, and I'll give you the one that I believe is consistent with our scripture today. Give you an illustration. As Christians, you're familiar with this. If you knew that someone was going to die and you had something that could save them, but you knew that that person would be offended, what would you do? Well, I would, I would like to say that I think that I would, I, would do, I would do that to save that person. Even though he might hate me for the rest of my life, I, I hope I would do that. Now, what about Jesus and his gospel? When people go by us every day, not knowing if they're saved, would you give them the gospel? I don't know. That's, I don't want to offend them. I don't want to be rejected. I don't want to be thought different. Okay. Would you take that step though? Maybe, hey, can I pray for you? Next week, come back to them. Hey, I pray for you. How to go? And then maybe one day you can invite them to hear this gospel. And then maybe one day they will believe in that gospel and they could partake of the Lord's Supper as one family with you. But that's kind of, that's hard. That's I don't want to get rejected. That's a bitter feeling. Well, what about the prophet John? What happened to him in the next, um, we're going to see. The gospel is as sweet as honey in his mouth, but then it's settled bitter in his stomach because once you tell people the gospel or the word of God, although it's sweet, you will find that people hate it. People hate that gospel that you find so sweet. Why? Because it means that they're sinners and God is coming to judge. For 
the first disciples and the apostles, it wasn't just, I'm afraid of rejection, I'm afraid of being thought weird. Go preach the gospel. What happened? It came with suffering, beating. Why? Because they hate that gospel. It could be as sweet as honey in your mouth. So good. God loves me this way. But then when, you, when it settles in you, when you think about what it means and what it entails, Jesus died for sinners. And there are sinners out there. This is a unique call to the Apostle John. Ezekiel had a call like this. He ate a scroll. Other than those two, I don't know of anyone who ate a scroll from the Lord. It's a unique call. But we have a very similar call, don't we? We have the gospel. It comes to you as sweet as honey. And you love it because God loved you so much. He sent his only son for you to die in your stead for your sins that you could be saved and have eternal life and have eternal fellowship with God forever through faith. It costed you nothing, but it costed his son everything. Sweet as honey. But then we think about the cost and what it means to truly eat that gospel. It starts to become bitter. God, they're going to hate me. They're going to be offended. They're going to reject me and you, no matter what I say. The interesting thing is, when the Apostle John ate that scroll, it's almost as if he became what he ate. What do I mean by that? That scroll, full of judgment and salvation, he ate it, and he almost became like the word living. That scroll living. He prophesied. That was the promise of the angel, the prophecy of the apostle, and now the last application the proclaiming church. Before you is the Lord's Supper. And you see that this table is a table because it has four legs. You see that it does not, it has nothing under that slab because it's a table. What that means is if there was something under that slab, it may not be a table. It may be an altar, but we come before a table. It's not an altar because what an altar means is you come before God and you give him a sacrifice. Maybe you think you come to the altar of God with your sacrifice, your performance, your righteousness, supposedly. And you say, God, if I would do this, will you, find, will you give me favor? But this is a table. It's a table because... The one sacrifice on the altar has already been sacrificed. It's done. And that meal is prepared for you. So when you come to this table, you don't come with your performance or lack thereof. You come seeing the performance of Christ on your behalf. And then when you taste that wafer and that cup, you go, this is as sweet as honey. I don't deserve this. But then you think about the cost and think about what it entails and what it means. And if you remember the Apostle Paul's words at the end of the institution, end of the Lord's Supper, he says, after you eat and drink, 
for you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what it entails and means. So what is the application? If you're not a believer, repent and believe. If you're kind of a believer, repent and believe. If you're a believer, repent and believe. Trust in God. Trust in him. And when you take your steps towards eating this Lord's Supper, just know that every step is by grace. And every step you take is by faith. God did this for me. And then make your commitment strong when you take that. Just know that you may become the thing that you ate. Living representatives of the gospel. And that's how you ought to be in the world. Full of grace and truth as the Lord is. Full of responsibility, sacrifice, suffering, bloodshed. Giving himself up for his enemies. I don't know what that means for you, but I know that it's applicable. Let's take this together. Thank God for what he has done. And let's recommit ourselves to him and say, God, thank you for this gospel. And please teach me, give me some wisdom on how I can share this gospel to others. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this passage which seems to be us seems to us bittersweet. Thank you for that mighty angel that represented the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thank you for that little scroll that he was given to give the Apostle John to prophesy. Thank you that you've given us of your word that we may know the gospel of Jesus Christ and trust in him and be saved and have fellowship with you everlastingly. And Father, we thank you for this bread and cup in front of us, the gospel made visible. Father, we come not in our own righteousness. We don't come thinking that we earned it, but we come because, Father, we have nowhere else to go. We need this gospel, and we trust in its sufficiency. Thank you for the sweetness that we can taste in it. For Jesus Christ has exhausted all of its bitterness and exhausted your wrath. We love you. We thank you. May we share this good news to the world. And may we live in light of the gospel always. Help us by the Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.